Cinema St. Louis's The Lens is now thetakeup.com, a place to gather after the film is over. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, and fear not, all your favorite episodes of The Lens featuring all your favorite guests are still here in your feed, just a little refocused. Stay subscribed to us here for future episodes, and you can follow along for new ones and more at the Takeup STL. Thank you for joining us on The Lens, a Cinema St. Louis podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, and while we're on a bit of a summer vacation, occasionally we're going to come on and do some now showing. We're going to be back to the lens proper in September with our next miniseries about the films of Nora Ephron and Nancy Myers. But until then, we're happy to present the Golden Anniversaries Film Festival Talks with some key speakers talking about some of the great films of 1972. And you can go to cinemastlouis.org to see information about upcoming events, including upcoming Golden Anniversary Talks you can see in person or online. Don't watch it without seeing the first one. So it's a sequel and it's just, it's the same actress, right? Like I saw- It's a prequel. (gasps) Prequel, first kill, duh. Mm -hmm. Because it's all a photo of the family all wearing like six inch platform boots. And then <laughs> the actress just hanging out. It's, so it's, if you if you are like a um, a special effects guy, it's actually kind of a cool movie just from that perspective because they do it like the Hobbit, like the Lord of the Rings movies. They do it entirely in camera through trickery, which is kind of cool. Which is the way to do it. But don't they also de-age her? No. Oh, not really. Okay. Not really. I mean, it's not like it's Robert De Niro trying to play nineteen or whatever in the Irishman, right? Yeah. I think, without getting spoilery, the only places it gets a little dodgy is there's some, like, fight scenes, you know, people scrabbling around on the floor where it's like, okay, this is no, this is very obviously 24-year-old Isabel Furman, like, with a normal size, normal, her being normal size and a normal size actress together rolling around on the floor. It's not really working. But, like, those are few and far between. I just appreciate a film that's like, fuck CGI, we're just gonna, like, pretend that this is not, like, that this actress who is now 24 is obviously is going to pretend she's a little girl again and leave it at that. It isn't quite like a net level uncanny valley craziness, <laughs> but it is, it's kind of, it's almost fun to watch just from a, wow, how are they doing this? They do use a body double. Like basically they very obviously mix up the shots with shots from behind where they're using an obvious, an obvious child actress. Obvious child actress, Jenny Slate. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but there are some cool, like, um, I don't know how to put this. There are some cool, not particularly showy, but like after they're over, you kind of think about them shots where you're like, wait a minute. They did that with, how did they, like, they did something with doors or blocking in front of the camera briefly to switch between the two actresses, the body double and Isabel Furman walking around on her knees or something. And I'm not sure how they did it. So it's co- if if it, it's a, not a great movie, but if you're a practical effects good guy, it's kind of fun to watch just from that perspective. Anyway, do you think that it's a the very concept of orphan is spoilable at this point? Don't you think people do, do you, or do you know or do you know it? Do you know oh, I know orphan. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. 
Well, then okay. I, I won't okay. ask the question. I had a question about a true to life story that mirrors Orphan. Are you familiar with it? No. People should Google it. It's the Ukrainian girl adopted by an Ohio family. Was that the basis for the original film? That was my question for you. Is it based on that or is it just a coincidence? I have no, I don't know the production history on the original. Hmm. Um, Wait, did we say the title of it ever? Orphan First Kill is what you're talking about. Yeah. Yep. And then um, I saw Beast, the Idris Elba starring film. He's a doctor, takes his two teenage girls back to their uh, recently deceased mother's uh, home in original home in, in South Africa. And they encounter a lion who's pissed a lion that's very pissed um and, and this is an all cgi lion correct all cgi lion but i'll say that this is a case in which cgi really worked for me um and it, it looks good i mean so they really haven't solved the problem of hair in cgi it's still a thing that hair doesn't really flow naturally so when this thing is standing up on a mountaintop like roaring into the sun and the, the wind is blowing its hair back. It's like, oh, now I see that it's CGI. <laughs> but um, otherwise, it looks pretty good until the thing gets, like, really bloodied and mangled and looks like a monster, which is, I guess, sort of appropriate for it. It's, it's a perfectly serviceable genre exercise, which right now feels like such a relief. Well, it does feel like an odd, like, we don't get these level of B-pictures released to theaters that much anymore. No, exactly. And, you know, we were talking about how um, Orphan First Kill is available on Peacock. It's like, what? Paramount Plus, sorry. Oh, Paramount Plus. Okay, okay. Because I was going to say, this one is universal. Um, So that would have made sense to put it on Peacock, but... I think it's a great theatrical experience because it is the kind of really like spare you're trapped in a cage and the shark is coming at you. There's a scene in this where the lion first attacks and they are in a Jeep and Idris Elba somehow <laughs> manages to get trapped underneath the Jeep while the uh, lion is attacking him. And the only thing that's holding you know, the lion back is like this, the step up into the Jeep. And the really smart thing, it's the director who's known for doing a lot of action films. It's, I'm going to try and say this. He's Icelandic. Baltasar Kormaker. Um, he made Contraband, Two Guns. But this one is interesting. I don't know if this is a thing for him, but it really works in this film is that he attempts no cuts and you can tell that some of them are digitally done um some of them are in hitchcock's rope fashion like the camera goes behind someone's back and then you know and then it transitions that way but for the action set pieces he really reserves cuts for for great effect and otherwise he's sort of laying out the space so that you're really familiar with it and you know where the gaps are, you know where like hallways are and where things could come up and scare the crap out of you. I mean, there are scenes in this where I was like, I, I, I don't want to be here right now. I can't handle this. Like, get me out of <laughs> well, here. 
And it's a, it's, it seems like an elementary statement, but a good sense of space and geometry and spatial storytelling is so important to action and thriller filmmaking. And it's, it's actually dispiriting how often we get filmmakers who don't seem to really understand it or have a good grasp of it. Right. And that action should be a flurry of images to imitate like condensed motion or quick motion. But that's not the case. The really the case is like understanding bodies in space. And this one does a it's just an excellent job of it. And it's not it's not really show offy. I mean, I watched it with someone and we were talking about this before and and or after the movie. And he said, Oh, I you know, I don't really understand what you meant. And it's it's sort of seamless in the way it's it's not like presentational, like you know, the first six minutes of Touch of Evil or whatever it is. I just think it's really smart. I have to ask, though, as somebody who is always a little bit hinky about killer animal movies and how they portray animal life, is there, like, a rationale for why this particular lion goes berserk? And is, it, is like, the movie sympathetic to the lion at all? Yes. About, like, why it's going and becoming man-eater? Yeah, it's really hard to to not feel for the lion because it starts... The, the villain in this film is a group of poachers. Of course, okay. And so the whole rationale is that the lion has learned that the human is the beast mm -hmm. and is therefore taking revenge. Now, whether or not that holds, you know, scientific well, water or whatever, I don't, I don't know, whatever. But it, it works within this narrative. And the other thing is that the, the dynamic between Idris Elba and the two women young women who play his daughters, it's Ayanna, Holly, and uh, Leah Jeffries. They're all great. They all work really well together. You understand their dynamics. They're really well-drawn and economically drawn characters because this movie is, bless, 90 minutes. <laughs> when I saw that on the, the invite <laughs> to, to watch this thing, I was like, are you kidding me? I don't think I've seen a movie in, in the theater recently that is under two hours. I uh, really need more like 90 minute B movies. Oh my God. And <laughs> it, it really was, it, it felt like a, a relief and I, I didn't, I wasn't really anticipating it, but I was excited to, to watch it because this is the kind of thing that is like comfort food to me. <laughs> the kind of B really well done B filmmaking with well-drawn characters and exciting filmmaking. You know, it's not going to change the world or, or maybe I won't even remember it in a few months, but it was one of the best times I've had at the theater for all my reservations with it too. Cool. And then, man, why can't I, oh, oh, a love song. This played Sundance this year, right? Mm -hmm. And Max, Max Walter Silverman, who is his, it's his first feature. Yeah, and it was a it's it played at Sundance. It was a big hit at Sundance, and it is sort of an archetypical Sundance film in some ways. Mm. So this is a romantic drama uh, starring Dale Dickey, great uh, actress who you've probably seen in a bajillion things. Even if you don't know her name, you know her face and her very red hair. Um, and Wes Studi, um, the great Native American actor who's been in a half bajillion things and it's been around forever, um, who's never really been given like a romantic lead role like this before, which is kind of cool. Um, it's, it's basically Dale Dickey plays a woman <clears throat> who is, um, sort of at a campground in the high Colorado, 
Colorado uh, mountains, and she's in a trailer by a lakeside and waiting for somebody. And sort of the first act of the film is her waiting for somebody. We don't really know who she's waiting for or why. She has some visitors who come by. I think particularly in the early goings, it's a little twee for my taste. Mm. Like it definitely has this Sundance indie dramedy vibe where these characters who feel like sort of third string Coen brother characters sort of come by and talk to her and they have like little precious interactions that have a slightly storybook feel to them. But um, all that aside, and I think like that stuff could almost be cut out. I can see a better, what I said is I can see a better 45 minute short film in this rather than like a 90 minute feature, but it's not bad. And once West Duty's character arrives, um, things sort of kick into a little stronger gear. But what's remarkable about it, I think, is that it's not really a romance, a romance film in the way that we typically think about it. So Dale Dickey and West Duty are obviously both older actors. Um, so on the one hand, I was sort of anticipating a sort of sweetly romantic film about falling for somebody in your, um, in your autumn years, for lack of a better term. Mm. And so the setup of the film, I'm sorry, I didn't mention it, is that, that they were high school, not sweethearts, they were high school friends who kind of maybe had a thing for each other and haven't seen each other for 40, 50 years. Um, and they're reuniting for the first time. And so I, first I thought it was going to be, oh, it's just going to be a sweet romance about how they find each other after all this time. They're both widowed now, that kind of thing. And it's a little bit more interesting and nuanced than that. It's really, as much as I want to describe it as a two-hander with, with Dickie and Westudi, it's really more of her film. It's a character study about her and a story about like what it's like to be in love or to anticipate love maybe when you're older, about realizing that you don't have a lot left to look forward to, that most of your life is looking backwards now rather than looking forwards, and how there's almost a addictive quality to the sensation that might, you might have something to look forward to. Ugh. Um, I can't. Wait, I'm making it sound. I'm making it sound more depressing. It's it's a very light. <laughs> it's a very light film. I will say, it's a very light film. Remember um, the word out of Sundance was minor, but awards buzzy. Which like that's never going to happen. Awards buzzy for Dale Dickey, but um, because it's so small and the distribution of it's so minor, and uh, it's so and it's so much about her. Like to me, like. The, the 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 director again i would sort of cut a lot if i was making this film i would cut a lot of sort of the twee interactions with secondary characters because so much of the movie the director wisely realizes i really just have to put my camera on dale dickey's face and let her emote and that's like 50 percent of my movie right there which is absolutely true and there, there are scenes where she's just sitting there doing nothing but thinking and you can see her gears turning and you can see the emotionality on her face it really works and it and it has a nice ending that sort of subvert things a little, subverts things a little bit. West Duty gets to play kind of against type, which is nice. He's playing this very sort of soft-spoken, soft-edged, very timid guy, which is kind of cool to see him playing a little bit outside his his typecasting wheelhouse. So I, I enjoyed it. it. I With the caution that I feel like it's maybe a little bit too storybook for my taste, hmm. but strictly of, if you want to see just some great character work and a rare movie about romance when you're older is is that isn't involved like <laughs> more like or away from her dem horrible dementia stories you just want to watch a basic character drama about older people uh maybe in love then then it's a good it's a good time did you ever see Blythe danner in um i'll see you in my dreams no 
very sweet movie about something similar, but sounds maybe a little bit more rom-com than this one. But I, I'm, I'm into, uh, you know, the addiction of, uh, thinking that there might be something better coming. Yeah. I can't believe you said that. Okay. Uh, just before we go and we're at this episode, we've got our friend Kate Lore, who's presenting the bitter tears of Petra von Kant. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, addictions <laughs> and, uh, thinking better things might come when they won't. Um, I want, I want to do a mini game that is one question. Oh, um, one question for you. Who do you think has more acting credits on IMDb, West Studi or Dale Dickey? I'm going to say West Studi. You're wrong. Oh, really? Uh, Dale Dickey has 131. She's yeah. been on. She's been on a lot of television too. A lot of TV. That. A lot of TV, and she's in the new League of Their Own series. It looks like, and West oh. City has one hundred and ten. But I would say that um, yes, Dale Dickey has a lot more television. Just like glancing through, she it. was on. She was on. Uh, My name is Earl. I think for a long time, recurring character. Yeah, she's been so much television. Oh, I feel so tired for Dale Dickey. Just <laughs> she was on Breaking Bad. I don't even remember that. Yep, she was. If you have, a, if you like her as an actress, I do recommend you seek out uh, some of the interviews that she's done. Her her publicity tour for this film has been a really enjoyable read. Like she does really good interviews, and a lot of them are very different depending on who she's talking to. Talking about sort of inevitable discussions of retrospective of her career and the kinds of roles that she gets, and um, it's it's pretty cool. She 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 gives good interview. <laughs> I will say um, her earliest credit is 1995. Wouldn't you think she's been going much longer than that? Like I don't, I don't know because I was a child in 1995. <laughs> she's talked about that how she's like as actors go, she's a bit of a late bloomer. That she she didn't really get into it, you know, right out of the gate. She wasn't uh, necessarily hitting hitting right right away. So. Um, but she's, I mean, she's become one of these sort of ubiquitous character actors, right? Like she's in everything. Yeah. She's great. They're great. I guess I'll watch this. I'll watch this when I'm ready to cry. <laughs> yeah. It, it is a little cryy at the end. I would say. I'm sensitive. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, throw it over to Kate with our latest golden anniversaries edition. She's talking about, well, I would say someone she studied her thesis was around uh, German melodrama and specifically Reiner Werner Fassbender, the director of the film she's talking about, The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. They said someday you'll find all who love are blind. discussions with films that you see on the ground and then join us for a virtual conversation 
Uh, you're in for a treat. Uh, today's film uh, is going to be introduced and discussed by Kate Lohr. Kate is a person who writes for Cinema St. Louis's blog, which is called The Lens. She also uh, helps with the programming of uh, Cinema St. Louis's QFest St. Louis, um, has been doing that for a couple of years. And she does uh, teaching as an adjunct at Webster University. Uh, she just taught a course on, what, what's the actual title? Uh, it's called Critically Queer. That was the name of the class. <laughs> so, Critically Queer. So anyway, uh, uh, given the nature of today's <laughs> film, uh, Kate is an especially appropriate person to have uh, intro and discuss. Uh, I'm going to turn things over. She's going to talk about the film in advance, and then she's going to give more information uh, later, but she'll be discussing at great length, I hope, uh, the film, and we will welcome your questions. So be thinking about what you want to ask Kate. Yeah, so I, um, when I ever talk about Fassbender, when anyone does, I don't know, any of you, have any of you seen Reiner Werner Fassbender's films before, or do you, is this everyone's first, or? Okay, uh, well, half and half, sort of. Anyway, so when you talk about Fassbender, the first thing you have to do is run through the tally. So before we start this movie, I really want you to realize here, over 16 years, he made 40 films, two TV series, three shorts, 24 plays, and in 1971, so the year before this film we're about to see was released, he did 11 films in one year. This guy was on a lot of cocaine. <laughs> and, uh, he was working with a uh, group of collaborators. They had this um, anti-theater tradition, which is inspired by the living theater. But um, just one thing to know is that they had been working for years prior to this, doing stage productions. Pedro von Kant is actually originally his, one of his stage productions. And think about maybe Kant, like Emmanuel Kant has an influence on this work, theoretically, if you know his work. Um, that's just kind of some insight, though, into the philosophical dimensions of the film, uh, again. But if you'd stay around for the post-discussion, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about Fassbender's scandalous life. Like, oh gosh, I was just saying beforehand, it kind of runs like a Euphoria episode, so it's pretty intense. Um, but yeah, we'll get into all that more after the film. Um, thank you. Uh, I hope you stick around. In my room, way at the end of the hall, I sit and stare at the wall, thinking how lonely I've grown, all alone in my room. Can you just kind of briefly go over the new German cinema movement, um, just in case you don't know about that. So, um, that was a uh, new German cinema is a term that's loosely applied to a, a grouping of films that were made in West Germany from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. The movement kicks off in 1962 when a group of young German filmmakers signed the Oberhausen Manifesto, declaring old film is dead, we believe in a new one. And dead it was. In 1960, West German movie theaters were closing at the rate of one a day. Like, far back as 56, tickets had dropped by 80 million each year for that four-year period. And, you know, a bunch of uh, these were after effects of World War II on German filmmakers and artists. There were other factors as well, but, you know, we're going to gloss over it because we're here about Fassbinder and not really the whole movement. Um, but anyway, what's important is that these films are being made in a time when there's a huge generational gap between 60s youths many of which were born during World War II, and their parents who had grown up and often supported Hitler's Germany. So the manifesto that these German filmmakers kind of surrounded themselves with, it, it did not address politics directly, 
Well, yeah. They anyway, to address politics directly, um, what they wanted was a fresh start and a new direction. There was no established film culture at the time in Germany, uh, as it was amidst a, uh, an identity crisis. A lot of the films that were playing were American imports or these government-funded, like, nationalist pictures of, like, a beautiful Germany. You know, like something that felt uh, artificial to most of the culture witnessing these films. Um, so this is a really key difference between the new German cinema movement and the French New Wave movement, another liberation movement that's happening along this time. They are looking to create their own new language. They are not turning back. Like Truffaut, if you, if you know about the French New Wave, when Truffaut wrote his famous piece, um, that kind of was their manifesto. He was looking at um, Hitchcock and other filmmakers and saying, like, we want to be like that and put our French spin on it. But the new German filmmakers, they were, they were more like, Every, it's all dead to us. Uh, Father cinema is over. We're starting anew. That said, it's a little disingenuous because a lot of them were working on French new wave sets and boring to buy it. Oh, and now her slide shows up. So yeah, um, let's see here, where was I? <laughs> oh yeah, so, um, Klug uh, uh, is actually, Alexander Klug is one of these filmmakers slash uh, intellectuals, lawyers, academics. He had like five different jobs. He was a big part of this Oberhausen Manifesto and someone who was working on a lot of French New Age films at the time. Huge influence on Fassbender, huge region why Fassbender was able to um, integrate into the scene. But um, yeah, uh, that brings us to another point because he's also an academic as were many of these filmmakers. Uh, this is happening alongside the rise of film studies as we know it. So these films are more philosophically engaged, more academically engaged than maybe previous films in that country, or um, one could argue. But anyway, throughout the mid-60s, the movement struggled to find its voice. Uh, many of these films were caught under the shadow of the French New Wave and the uh, Italian neo-realists. Others were uh, critical missteps. Finding a new voice, you know, requires failing a lot. Um, yeah, but by 1971, German film would be soaking up much of the ink across academic journals and the critical press. Films by Herzog, Van Benders, and Fassbender, of course, screened at the New York Film Festival in 71. And that moment claimed a name for itself. That's when they got their name, the New German Cinema Movement. And so for Fassbender, yeah, we just watched 1972's film, The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. Before that, it was The Merchant of Venice. That's what was playing during that New York Film Festival. And that was a huge success, got him a bunch of, well, for him, a bunch of money, which is why we have such a rich um, set design and so many uh, songs he's able to use. Money was the best thing to have him for Fosslander because he could really play with that aesthetically and push his vision. But we'll, we'll return to that in a bit. I'm going to skip to my next slide. If it'll let me. Oops, I went forward one. That's okay. <laughs> okay, so. That's where we wanted to be. So yeah, let's just look at this quote here for a minute. Uh, Reiner Hunter Fassbender, he was a self-proclaimed romantic anarchist. Uh, we can debate that based on the contents of this film, of course. <laughs> but yeah, he, uh, when he was 17, when that manifesto hit, uh, by which point he had already uh, decided to dedicate himself to a life of filmmaking. Uh, but by 65, so we're gonna fast forward a couple years here. 65, he's 20 years old, he's one year out of school and with no diploma to show for it. Who cares, he's an artist. Now he just needs his in a benefactor and collaborators. This leads him to room, uh, rooming with actor friend Christopher Roser. Roser, uh, he had a substantial amount of money, but Fassbender did not know that. 
So to make rent, Fassbender started picking up odd jobs, not knowing again that there's all this money he could access in his roommate. He's writing poems and short stories whenever he had downtime. He enrolled in acting school, went to bohemian bars, tried working up the nerve to collaborate with artists and activists there, but he was shy and he had nothing to his name. Then three big things happen. One, Fassbender finds out about Roser's money. Two, he wins first place in a writing contest, which leads him to three, meet Irm Herman at one of these bohemian Munich bars, his event, Roser's performance of his work. It was Fassbender's prize-winning piece, A Slice of Bread, and while, Fassbender, or while Roser performed it, Fassbender would try to make himself small in the dark of the bar, disappearing into that signature leather jacket of his. Still, Aram Herman's eyes would find him, and as she would put it, it was love at first sight. All summer would pass, and uh, she would not stop thinking about him. But Fassbender, always with his mind of his work, was producing several scripts during these months. He'd take breaks occasionally, spending time with Hannah Shigoya. She was one of the stars in this, as was uh, Herman. We'll go over that in a minute. Uh, and he met Shigoya in an acting class. They agreed almost everything when it came to art, and the friendship was instantaneous. Finally, the summer ends. Fassbender reconnects with Arm Herman. He offers her a, short, uh, a role in a short film. There is no money in it, which really embarrassed him. But she didn't care. She was in love with him. So that's when the work finally happens. Fassbender is getting to two short films. Uh, a Little Chaos and a City Tram. Then three more things happen. Little short films get rejected from the Oberhausen Festival. Then Fassbender gets thrown out or slash quits his uh, acting school. And third, Herman fully devotes herself to Fassbender, quitting her job and becoming his agent. She pulls all the money out of her bank account and his, takes two heavy copies of films and portfolios of, uh, of photographs, begins visiting producers in TV stations across Germany. Meanwhile, Fassbender uh, tries to find some, some work and some interest on his own time. But uh, eventually, Herman gets into it. She, I think her intense interest translates to some of these producers. And they're like, OK, we have a date for Fassbender to come and audition. And if we like him, we'll give him some money. He can make some stuff. Well, she tries to reach him, and she can't, because he and Roser are driving stolen cars across the country to make some money. Um, and he ends up in jail when the audition's supposed to happen. So that doesn't really work out for him. And he's devastated. All three of them are out of money at this point. Seems like a dead end career-wise. So Reiner, uh, he applies to the Berlin Film School, and he gets rejected again. Anyway, that's from this first short there. Oh, I'm too far over. Anyway, so you see up here we got Fassbender, we have Shigoya, we have Herman. Herman, of course, played uh, the silent character we'll talk about in a bit. And then we have Shigoya here. She's playing. Um, uh, Karen in it, and these other faces are involved too, but we'll get to that. So, um, we're jumping back here to, uh, now that he's rejected, he doesn't know what to do, he goes back to Munich, and he reconnects with his actor friend, Marit, up here, uh, or down here, rather, in the center, and uh, she worked on A Little Chaos with them, but she was already, at this point, doing work in a Brechtian theater troupe named Action Theater, uh, which and was modeled after uh, Becca Molina's Living Theater in New York. So these, this group of people, the action theater group that Fassbender would soon integrate into, they thought of themselves as activists first, seeing art as a site of radicalizing the public. Their plays were experimental, creating a rapport between performer and audience, and Fassbender would later say that this facet in particular is what took his breath away. Uh, Fassbender started showing up at practices with Marie, quietly forcing himself into the group. He was not accepted at first. See this quote here, Kurt Robb, kind of cut off. He was just thought this guy was a creep. Like, he really didn't like him. Um, and, you know, up for debate on whether or not he was a creep. Uh, so, yeah, he, um, 
he ended up uh, just showing up anyway, and when Foss Thunder eventually, uh, somebody fell out, they were like, we need somebody else in, and who knew the lines, who knew the work better about Foss Thunder, so he kind of got integrated into the troops' performances. Uh, around the time he started performing, the group started uh, bringing in tramps off the street, offering them hot meals if they involved themselves in the performance, because this is, again, kind of borrowing from that New York realist tradition, like people from the streets performing these highbrow concepts, but making them really radically um, accessible, is maybe the way I would say it. But, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, one of these tramps sticks around, and they were all kind of okay with it, because they thought he was super beautiful, and they're all like, you know, ridiculous artist people. So they're like, yeah, hang around, keep eating free meals with us and just be in our place. And he was like, I'm a prince. I'm a royal prince. I should keep hanging out with you guys and eventually my money will, will come into place. I'm like, great, and you're beautiful. So a bunch of them start sleeping with him. And Fosfetter <laughs> gets jealous because he's not. So he starts messing around with Marie, who's you know in this love triangle with this prince man. And it pretty much ends with the prince getting angry and stabbing Marie several times. She never can walk again, and she has to step out of this program. So who uh, joins but Hana Shigoya, Fassbender's main friend here, who's waiting for another moment to slip somebody else in, and with that, the two of them kind of take over the troop. Anyway, with the addition of Shigoya, the troop succeed, uh, succeeded unlike ever before. She was a hit, and Fassbender, who had a special bond with Shigoya, took over as head playwright and director, causing Rob to step down, sliding back into a supporting role. Fassbender was except, exceptionally intuitive. Even Robin admitted it. His role as director, uh, he had a neck with connecting with actors very quickly, uh, almost wordlessly, getting what he wanted uh, in almost no time. And uh, that kind of effect, it kind of had to keep going with him. He was just so prolific. Uh, but yeah, so his power grab did rub some people the wrong way, especially the original company theater horse, who felt that action theater's politics should translate to more direct political actions in the street going beyond the stage. But Fassbender and his followers, the rest of the troop, didn't see it that way. The plane of ideas and artistic expression was an ample arena to radicalize the public, they thought. However, there were two more reasons for tension between Fassbender and Horst. For one, Horst was secretly making a bombs beneath the stage for the RAF, that's a radical left-wing terrorist group. Uh, and so among the crowd at every performance, making their taste known by expounding their politics, they were, they were just, the RAF was a frequent uh, presence here uh, in their productions. Uh, anyway, Fassbender had friends in that group too, as well as another special friend, Horst Weiss, or Ursula, which was another source of tension. She joined a kind of like a sadomasochistic threesome with Fassbender and our friend Aram Herman here. Um, the three of them lived together in Herman's apartment. Fassbender and Ursula took the bed, Herman took the floor. It was almost always this way with Fassbender, usually with Herman, and very often including uh, Pierre Robin over here, a composer for most of Fassbender's uh, films. Uh, but yeah, he was always cycling out different love lovers, writing uh, plays about their relationships, choosing to cast the actors in the same parts, playing characters of themselves. This can't sustain itself. Eventually, uh, the action theater implodes. Horse gets arrested for burning down a commercial property in Frankfurt, and so Fassbender would take the opportunity to dissolve the group, starting again with the anti-theater, a troupe that included many of his favorites from this production group. So. Under Reiner's direction, the anti-theater group would see their per-performance income increase tenfold, but everyone was going to depend on him more and more. During the same period, the first half, uh, the first half year of the anti-theater's uh, lifespan. Oh my gosh, I just lost where I was. Oh, sorry guys. So. Um, 
During this first six-month period of doing this, uh, Fassbender's notori notoriety would rise dramatically. He was in five movies made by other German directors. Uh, press was all over this anti-theater group. It just exploded with uh, Fassbender and Shivoya kind of directing everything. Uh, the bounty and the variety of jobs continued into the next year as this anti-theater would p uh, finally pivot into filmmaking. They finally had enough funding to really do what they wanted to do or what he wanted to do from the first place, which was enter the, uh, the film circuit. So uh, by 1970, Fassbender's anti-theater produced a whopping 11 films to mention nothing of their theater output. But by the time, uh, by the end of the, that year, the authorities uncovered massive tax fraud by the troop for which Pierre Robin was also, was mainly responsible. So when Reiner got the bill, he fired him. Robin thinks, however, there was another reason for his firing, which is that Fassbender had a new boyfriend, Gunther Kaufmann, and didn't have any use for Robin anymore. For most of that year, Fassbender and most of the troop uh, was crazy about the beautiful and mild-mannered Kaufmann. Before that, it was Harry Bear at the center of the Fassbender's sexual and creative life, and before that, Robin. But now, Kaufman would assume the best roles in all the productions, most everyone else would settle for bit parts. And Fassbender would shower him with gifts, usually cars, which Kaufman would frequently crash or sell, all paid for by the collective's profits. And then Kaufman got everything he wanted this way, and he grew capable of violent outbursts when he didn't. Uh, neglectful too, Kaufman would abandon set and return to his wiping kids as he pleased. The relationship pushed Fassbender towards dysfunction, often shutting down film production and threatening suicide. <laughs> all right, we're gonna jump to 1971. So just a year after all this. So in 1971, Fassbender marries Ingrid Cabin, despite Kaufman, of course, uh, another troop member Cabin was. And uh, in the process, this devastating Shigoya and Herman and then Fassbender kind of had to dissolve the anti-theater. They were out of money and energy, he needed a new direction, and he was annoyed because at this point too, most of the film productions are like being inspired by the French New Wave. You know, I said it wasn't earlier, but he was really heavily influenced by Godard, and he kind of felt like he was in a trap that Godard seemed to relish in, which was, my work's not going further than this group of people. How do I change the world if I'm just talking to my 10 friends every time? So he takes this big pause, and he, for him, they pause, it's like three months. Uh, and he goes to the, um, he basically uh, goes to some museums and he starts to see things like uh, this Poussin here, uh, Linus giving thanks to uh, Picasso. We, of course, you know this painting well, we just saw it in the film. Uh, he sees a lot of Belmer. He sees Douglas Sirk's uh, Magnificent Obsession along with four, no, five other films. There's a great piece where he just writes all these little reviews on them. I really recommend looking it up. But it really liberated him because uh, in discovering Douglas III, he felt that he had discovered a way to attack bourgeois society and the system, but in a way that was populist and accessible to people. Like these kind of the melodramas, big swoopy feelings, you know, it, it's this kind of turn away from conventional language to say something bigger. It was avant-garde and it was populist. And so he tried to fuse that with his like kind of, you know, um, Brechtian, Godard kind of tinged art cinema mode. This is where the period he's in when he starts making films again. Like Petra is the, I want to say it's the second film to come out of this cycle of work. Um, yeah, but I feel like we should kind of unpack some of the biography of Gosslinger a little bit if we go further. So Kurt Robb presents the story of Petra von Kant as one that could be performed by six men. It was actually a man's piece. It was about a part of his life, this history with Dr. Kaufman. At this point, it's commonplace for film scholars and critics to interpret the work as one with larger-than-life portrayals of femininity, which can be understood as like a kind of drag or role play of womanhood. 
Perhaps more suitable, though, is Rose von Pronheim's, another director, hated Fassbender, Pronheim's description of Fassbender's woman. His women figures were, like Tennessee Williams, always part of his, quote, transvestic soul. But then there's the opening credits, which dedicate itself to Marlena, and uh, provides an unusual credit, the special participation, uh, with, uh, <laughs> excuse me, with special participation of Irm Herman as Marlena. Pedro von Kant's opening credits tempt a certain biographical read in both at Marlena's dedication and an unusual credit for one who portrays her. Um, but surrounding the film's initial release, Fassbender supported a more Kaufman-focused reading, framing Petra as being based on a particular relationship of mine, where the man he was seeing was like a father, like a child, like a man, like a woman. Occasionally, he referenced his triangular relationship with Kaufman and, uh, and Pierre Robin, saying that Robin's position was what inspired Marlena. So he sends a lot of mixed messages and kind of blurring all of these characters together. Um, the answer would change yet again years down the line. And he would say, this is much later, he says, it began with an attempt to explore his relationship with uh, Gunther Kaufman, and it had gradually absorbed elements of his relationship with Herman, whose character Marlena reflects uh, Herman's real role as a kind of masochistic lawyer to many of Fassbender's love affairs, but also the almost the, the true director and, and creative in engine for his projects. Like, again, we can go into some Q&A if you guys want to, but um, it's a very complex role that she's playing. In all these differing expectations from Fassbinder, there is one constant that can be inferred, and the relationship dynamics in Petra von Kant move across heterosexual and homosexual relationships as well as male and female experience. This dynamic takes the form of unacknowledged displays of dominance and submission that Fassbinder implies are intrinsic to all intimate relationships in and outside of the film. That is to say, for Fassbinder, sadomasochism becomes an all-perversive psychic force within society, while an individual's identification within the spectrum is perpetually in flux. These understandings are radically ahead of their time, predating Judith Butler, predating Eve Kosofsky uh, Sedwick, groundbreaking queer theorists in the 90s. It's these kind of um, fluid identity, this understanding that kind of grounds queer aesthetics. And he's doing this in the 70s before the new queer cinema in the 90s. Uh, so this is like a pretty, like, pretty ahead of its time way of approaching identity and orientation. And I think another thing for me too, personally, is the way he really fuses melodrama here. Um, there's a lot to say there, but I, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm talking about a lot of stuff here, and I'm really curious how you guys reacted to the film. There's so many ways to interpret it. Um, I'd really like to open up the questions at this point. Did you enjoy it? What did you guys think? Questions? Comments? Josh. Do you have a question? Oh, I thought that was a question. Oh, oh no. <laughs> you were like, yes! No. Well, I do have a question. I know you do. First, um, I've seen it before yeah. and often find myself very lost in it mm -hmm. in the best way possible in the uh, individual relationships between all of them. This time, knowing a little bit more about Fassbender last time I watched it, mm -hmm. the biographical read yeah. and the dedication to Erm uh, Hermann. Um, is it a sort of apology to her? Is it a sort of course correction in their relationship? Or is it simply sort of telling their relationship? That's a really good question. And I kind of think, for me, the way Fassbender, this movie's really pure in the sense that you're in one room for most of it, you're a very small group of people. 
but we're having his autobiographical life that was all over the press at this point in Germany, because he was making a lot of money from the state to make films along with the other directors, and different people felt different ways about it, um, especially since they had this very open, like, kind of anarchist, like, commune happening when they were all dating each other. And so I think in some ways it's, it's kind of all three of what you're saying, but not as, like, a cop-out. Like, I think Foster is a very difficult person. He reads Wikipedia page, just like the granddaddy of Wikipedia page. You just kind of feel sick afterwards and you feel inspired at the same time. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. But um, I think in some ways this is more about, less about Herman, a, a bit of a gesture towards an apology to her, but I think it's really about putting himself at the center and saying, I'm, this is what's wrong with me. Uh, he's Petra, right? And she's pretty. I don't know how you guys interpret the ending, but to me it's that Herman's like, I chose to be in this with you, and now you're not getting why I chose this. You're just using me, you're fetishizing me, and I'm leaving now. Um, and so to me, it's because she realizes that Karen's going to, or not Karen, uh, she realizes that Petra's going to just repeat the cycle again. Um, so really, in my mind, Herman's kind of the hero, the like tank of the movie. Um, yeah. And I was telling you earlier, I don't know if you've seen Shane, but I always think of Shane when I look at her now, some weird comparison. If you're curious, liberation movements were divided on this. Feminist groups in the area hated it for being, they thought, a hysterical betrayal of women. I can understand that, given what's going on at the time. Liberation movements, you know, they had a lot to fight for, they still do. So this isn't necessarily a celebratory movie, but I think it's even more whole for, for looking beyond those rights and looking at the kind of combinates through all of us um, and the systems we live in. Anything else? I'm curious uh, about uh, the packing at the end, uh, Marlena. And uh, particularly, there's a record that gets put in. Do we know what that record is? Oh, I what record is it? Scott Walker. It might be Scott Walker. It looks like Scott Walker. But it might be. It could be Scott Walker. Walker. I don't know what record she puts in. I'm not sure. But isn't it funny how it's like you watch it and you're like, this is almost like Wes Anderson framing, but like the exact like you just drain all the life out of it, you know? <laughs> and then of course she dumps in at the very end a gun. A checkoff gun. <laughs> yeah, just like a. I'm just there. curious as to what your thoughts were about uh, what Fassbender was saying. With, with that choice. I kind of feel like the, with the choice to have her pack up like that in the end, I think it's really to underscore the fact that she is the mover in this group. She pulls the blinds open at the beginning of the movie, the light hits Petra's face, she's up. It's almost like she's directing the whole thing. Half this movie, you're like, if you've never seen it before, you might have been sitting there waiting for her to snap and she never quite does. Um, so to me, having her pack her bags like that and, and leave so dramatically and really just put her right at the center and all of these objects of hers both shows how little we know her and how much agency she had. So to me, that is really the narrative there in that moment. Yes, Josh? With that, uh, you were talking about his relationship to Douglas Sirk and uh, older Hollywood at that point. Mm -hmm. For me, this film has two very important hallmarks. One would be All About Eve, and then the other, maybe more apparently so, is Sunset Boulevard. And I, she definitely feels like the von Stroheim of the whole thing, the director of yes, the whole yes. thing. Yes. Yeah, with the Sunset Boulevard kind of gone there, I think some people seem to use this film looking at it wondering, like, is she her husband? 
like, because there's some illusion when she's talking about her husband and the camera kind of swings around and puts her in frame. And I think whether or not she's her, has, her husband now living this other life is kind of beyond the point, but also really falls into the way Faustner approached identity and sexuality. So I think it's like yes and no, and it doesn't matter, and it's the whole movie. Um, that's like such a terrible answer, but um, yeah. Can I answer what you said? Was there anything else in there? No? Okay. Uh, following up on what Josh said, too, yeah. in the sense of the reference to All About Eve, there's the playful uh, uh, letter that's oh, dictated yes. to Joseph Mankiewicz. <laughs> that's who, hilarious. Of course, those who don't know, was yeah. the director, writer-director of All About Eve, as well as many other films. I was just curious as to, uh, again, your thoughts. Uh, how, how does uh, Mankiewicz, we know Cirque's influence over Fassbender, but what do you see as uh, Mankiewicz's potential uh, influence over Fassbinder's work? I think really, though, I, I, I would say that his work goes through so many different cycles, and in this case, he was really absorbing work like that. So I think it's very, the Mankiewicz reference is very particular to this melodrama cycle he's in. But um, largely in regards to All About Eve, it's, it, I kind of think the, it's that thematic element there, because there's so much stacking here in terms of what he's pulling from. So I think it's kind of a more zoomed out reference to All About Eve and how that would fit in and this younger woman kind of usurping um, the older woman's position and taking over. And of course, that's the main cycle that's happening in this film uh, between Karen and Petra. So I think that kind of violent cycle of the theater is why he pulls that name. And it's in that melodrama mode that's not far away from Douglas Sirk. So, you know, you could also think of the bitter tears of General Yance that'll hurt influence in here. Um, Emil Kemp, a philosopher. Really, Fassbender's so good at collecting all these different references, like this, these major touchstones, and then turning out his own language from within it. Um, and I think that's really, that's really where I would stand with that, at least pulling from those references. Oh, more questions. Uh, one thing that was, uh, struck me and that confused me yeah. from the beginning was the clothing all seemed to be from the 1920s. <laughs> I mean, all the look, everything. Yeah. And then she turns on a requiem. I'm like, okay, but this is supposed to be taking place in the modern times. But I thought, oh, is this a period a great, movie from the 20s? That's a great point. Yeah, I think, um, and some of it too looks 20s, but it also looks like Baroque, like the painting we're looking at, that is unframed. It's very important to hide that unframed painting because it's like the, the artist is extending beyond that. We're all playing a little bit like, you know, the 60s or 70s. No one's cool, right? Like, none of we're all like, what is going on here? This is all performance and extravagance. So I think, I think it's supposed to be jarring. And I think uh, I lean into reading this film too as a kind of, uh, like I mentioned this kind of anarchist uh, sensibilities. And by that, like it's almost an approach to like a timeless, like an ahistoric kind of mode for this world that they're in. It's like, it's outside of time and it's kind of communicating through all these different layers of narratives and different periods. So I think your disorientation is exactly what you wanted. <laughs> There's also the, the records that she talks about being from her childhood but those records are only like 15 years yeah, old. That's, that's so, the other factor too. Yeah. yeah, that's a great point. Well, and the other thing was partway through the movie, she, I guess maybe her mother um, refers to her as being 35 years old. So she's got this older daughter. <laughs> In my mind, I was like, None of them had children yet. Um, big surprise, none of them had children yet. And uh, he never did, actually. That's the whole story. Her name actually uh, left him at one point and had kids with somebody. And uh, Fosman really wanted to adopt a child who still had, and she wouldn't let him. Um, yeah, but uh, I think, yeah, that, again, that's him kind of just 
He's like, I don't care. Like, oh, I'm making him with the needs of the family. Uh, but he really does. That's the sad thing. Anyway, uh, any other comments, questions? There was somebody up here. Oh, yeah, what I had to say was about the costumes also. And there was yeah. one dress she wore when, I think it was Karen, about Karen. Karen came for the evening. Yeah. It reminded me so much of something that I think Marlene and Dietrich wore. And yes. It was, or Greg Garwood, is it Marlene? But Dietrich is a huge, like, she's named Marlena, uh, as in the other characters named Marlena, as a reference to Dietrich. Uh, Dietrich is all over Frost Pinter's films uh, as a presence, you know, as like a kind of a... But yeah, I think um, that was a, definitely a reference to Dietrich, that's a good eye. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to go back and look at, I can't remember what the movie was, she was a spy in the movie. Oh, Dishonored. It's Dishonored. Oh, she's in the loudest outfit. She's like, she's supposed to be the super spy, she's in this big sparkly cape, it's hilarious. And that's kind of the tone of this movie, right? Is uh, you, they're all performing and dressing up like that for like no one but each other. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anything else, my friend? I was just gonna ask about the, um, well, the work that Petra does, which you never actually see her doing any of that. No. I think you're hitting a nail on the head there. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think, um, and also, I mean, Fosbender gives her a special credit at the beginning of this movie, so it's kind of like a like a link, like like she's an extra special performance from her. So she does get that credit, like outside of the the film's reality. But um, oh gosh, you had said something that I want to carry forward. Oh yeah, Fosbender. So another thing with Fosbender now, he he really did shoot most all of his films. But most all, uh, he was on a lot of drugs, and uh, this one, I think he mostly was on set and doing everything. But every once in a while, you'll get like with uh, I know uh, there's one previous to this. He's just on drugs the whole time, having a meltdown with Kaufman. So they have uh, I think it was Bauhaus that they said the, the cinematographer this one who actually directed that. So there's so much. We're being in a collective like that and working for years together. There's a lot of tossing around. There's a lot of, yeah, I think there is an anti-gotorist aesthetic like, uh, orientation here, but he also kind of wants it and needs it, one, to get money, and two, he's got to be at the center. He's got something. But if you read about his personal life, it's really clear. Like, this is a director, like, so many from this era, and even now, where keeping these movies running, making 40 years, because, like, you need all your friends working with you at all times. We have another one. We've got to do this one now. And they all kind of do it together, but under his name. Anyway. Kate, uh, given how prolific Fassbender was, uh, I suspect a lot of people haven't encountered a lot of his other work. Mm -hmm. uh, give a, a little guide from the point of view of if you're going to seek out three or four or five films of his to give a taste of what his overarching career is, is like. Where would, where would you turn first? Ooh, okay, so I think if you were going to watch something other, from, different from this, his most tender film, maybe his, his nicest, would be Ali Fury's Basol. That ends pretty miserably, I'll tell you much, but like, it's very connected to, to this. Uh, it's a very much a translation of All That Heaven Allows. Um, so it's, uh, I would definitely check that out. And The Merchant of Four Seasons right before this, those three are, are really a great example of this like melodrama cycle they're doing. Um, previous to that, or rather, actually, I would, I would look at posts from that. Um, I think another great starting point, which is another bad time, is <laughs> in a year of 13 moons. It's like Richard Linklater's favorite. Um, there's a great DVD where he just like, very um, 
compelling intro to the film, but um, that is one of that's one of his darkest works, and a later one. I definitely check that out if you're interested in these more um, identity-focused films with with uh, very queer, progressive understandings of gender. Um, hmm. And then, of course, there's also the third generation, which is much about that anarchist RAF section that I was talking about earlier. Um, it's a comedy about a troop of anarchists, and it's very um, underscores the line between. Um, Fascism and anarchism. Um, <laughs> always fun. Yeah. Anything else? Other questions, comments? If not, then let's thank Kate. Yeah. And we'll wrap things up. Thank you guys. Thank you. Love to share with you.